0: Chapter 15, Part 9 of The Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Monsbru, Helsingfors, Finland. Chapter 15, Progress of the Christian Religion, Part 9. From this impartial, though imperfect, survey of the progress of Christianity, it may perhaps seem probable that the number of its proselytes has been excessively magnified by fear on one side and by devotion on the other. According to the irreproachable testimony of a region, the proportion of the faithful was very inconsiderable when compared with the multitude of an unbelieving world. But, as we are left without any distinct information, it is impossible to determine, and it is difficult even to conjecture, the real number of the primitive christians the most favourable calculation however that can be deduced from the examples of antioch and of rome will not permit us to imagine that more than a fraction of the population found themselves under the banner of the cross before the important conversion of constantine but their habits of faith of zeal and of union seemed to multiply their numbers and the same causes which contributed to their future increase serve to render their actual strength more apparent and more formidable. Such is the constitution of civil society, that whilst a few persons are distinguished by riches, by honors, and by knowledge, the body of the people is condemned to obscurity, ignorance, and poverty. The Christian religion, which addressed itself to the whole human race, must consequently collect a far greater number of proselytes from the lower than from the superior ranks of life, this innocent and natural circumstance has been improved into a very odious imputation which seems to be less tenuously denied by the apologists than it is urged by the adversaries of the faith that the new sect of christians was almost entirely composed of the dregs of the populace of peasants and mechanics of boys and women of beggars and slaves the last of whom might sometimes induce the missionaries into the rich and noble families to which they belonged these obscure teachers, such was the charge of malice and infidelity, are as mute in public as they are loquacious and dogmatical in private. Whilst they cautiously avoid the dangerous encounter of philosophers, they mingle with the rude and illiterate crowd, and insinuate themselves into those minds, whom their age, their sex, or their education, has the best disposed to receive the impression of superstitious terrors. This unfavourable picture, though not devoid of a faint resemblance, betrays, by its dark colouring and distorted features, the pencil of an enemy. As the humble fate of Christ diffused itself through the world, it was embraced by several persons who derived some consequence from the advantages of nature or fortune. Aristides, who presented an eloquent apology to the Emperor Hadrian, was an Athenian philosopher. Justin Martyr had sought divine knowledge in the schools of Zeno, of Aristotle, of Pythagoras, and of Plato before he fortunately was accosted by the old man, or rather the angel, who turned his attention to the study of the Jewish prophets. Clemens of Alexandria had acquired much various reading in the Greek and Tertullian in the Latin language. Julius Africanus and Origen possessed a very considerable share of the learning of their times, and although the style of Cyprian is very different from that of Lactantius, we might almost discover that both these writers had been public teachers of rhetoric. Even the study of philosophy was at length introduced among the Christians, but it was not always productive of the most salutary effects. Knowledge was as often the parent of heresy as of devotion, and the description which was designed for the followers of Artemon may, with equal propriety, be applied to the various sects that resisted the successors of the apostles. They presumed to alter the holy scriptures, to abandon the ancient rule of faith, and to form their opinions according to the subtle precepts of logic, the science of the church is neglected for the study of geometry and they lose sight of heaven while they are employed in measuring the earth euclid is perpetual in their hands aristotle and Theophrastus are the objects of their admiration and they express an uncommon reverence for the works of galen their errors are derived from the abuse of the arts and sciences of the infidels and they corrupt the simplicity of the gospel by the refinements of a human reason Nor can it be affirmed with truth that the advantages of birth and fortune were always separated from the profession of Christianity. Several Roman citizens were brought before the tribunal of Pliny, and he soon discovered that a great number of persons of every order of men in Bithynia had deserted the religion of their ancestors. His unsuspected testimony may, in this instance, obtain more credit than the bold challenge of Tertullian when he addresses himself the fears as well as the humanity of the proconsul of Africa, by assuring him that if he persists in his cruel intentions, he must decimate Carthage, and that he will find among the guilty many persons of his own rank, senators and matrons of nobles' extraction, and the friends or relations of his most intimate friends. It appears, however, that about forty years afterwards, the emperor Valerian was persuaded of the truth of this assertion, since in one of his rescripts he evidently supposes that senators, roman knights and ladies of quality were engaged in the christian sect the church still continued to increase its outward splendour as it lost its internal purity and in the reign of diocletian the palace the courts of justice and even the army concealed a multitude of christians who endeavoured to reconcile the interests in the present with those of a future life and yet these exceptions are either too few in number or too recent in time entirely to remove the imputation of ignorance and obscurity which has been so arrogantly cast on the first proselytes of Christianity. Instead of employing in our defence the fictions of later ages, it will be more prudent to convert the occasion of scandal into a subject of edification. Our serious thoughts will suggest to us that the apostles themselves were chosen by providence among the fishermen of Galilee, and that the lower we depress the temporal condition of the first Christians, the more reason we shall find to admire their merit and success. It is incumbent on us diligently to remember that the kingdom of heaven was promised to the poor in spirit, and that minds afflicted by calamity and the contempt of mankind cheerfully listen to the divine promise of future happiness, while, on the contrary, the fortune are satisfied with the possession of this world, and the wise abuse in doubt and dispute the vain superiority of reason and knowledge we stand in need of such reflections to comfort us for the loss of some illustrious characters which in our eyes might have seemed the most worthy of the heavenly present the names of seneca of the elder and the younger Pliny, of tacitus of plutarch of galen of the slave epictetus and of the emperor marcus antoninus adorn the age in which they flourished and exalt the dignity of human nature they filled with glory their respective stations either in active or contemplative life Their excellent understandings were improved by study, philosophy had purified their minds from the prejudices of the popular superstition, and their days were spent in the pursuit of truth and the practice of virtue. Yet all these sages, it is no less an object of surprise than of concern, overlooked or rejected the perfection of the Christian system. Their language or their silence equally discovered their contempt for the growing sect, which in their time had diffused itself over the Roman empire those amongst them who condescended to mention the christians considered them only as obstinate and perverse enthusiasts who exacted an implicit submission to their mysterious doctrines without being able to produce a single argument that could engage the attention of men of sense and learning it is at least doubtful whether any of these philosophers perused the apologies which the primitive christians repeatedly published in behalf of themselves and their religion but it is much to be lamented that such a cause was not defended by abler advocates they expose with superfluous eloquence the extravagance of polytheism they interest our compassion by displaying the innocence and sufferings of their injured brethren but when they would demonstrate the divine origin of christianity they insist much more strongly on the predictions which announced than on the miracles which accompanied the appearance of the messiah their favorite argument might serve to edify a christian or to convert a jew since both the one and the other acknowledge the authority of those prophecies, and both are obliged, with devout reverence, to search for their sense and their accomplishments. But this mode of persuasion loses much of its weight and influence, when it is addressed to those who neither understand nor respect the mosaic dispensation and the prophetic style. In the unskilful hands of Justin and of the succeeding apologists, the sublime meaning of the Hebrew oracles evaporates in distant types, affected conceits, and cold allegories, and even their authenticity was rendered suspicious to an uneducated Gentile by the mixture of pious forgeries which, under the names of Orpheus, Hermes, and the Sibyls, were obtruded on him as of equal value with the genuine inspirations of heaven. The adoption of fraud and sophistry in the defense of Revelation too often reminds us of the injudicious conduct of those poets who loathe their invulnerable heroes with a useless weight of cumbersome and brittle armor. But how shall we excuse the supine inattention of the pagan and philosophic world to those evidences which were represented by the hand of omnipotence, not to their reason, but to their senses? During the age of Christ, of his apostles, and of the first disciples, the doctrine which they preached was confirmed by innumerable prodigies. The lame walked, the blind saw, the sick were healed, the dead were raised, demons were expelled, and the laws of nature were frequently suspended for the benefit of the church. But the sages of Greece and Rome turned aside from the awful spectacle, and, pursuing the ordinary occupations of life and study, appeared unconscious of any alterations in the moral or physical government of the world. Under the reign of Tiberius, the whole earth, or at least the celebrated province of the Roman Empire, was involved in a preternatural darkness of three hours. Even this miraculous event, which ought to have excited the wonder, the curiosity, and the devotion of mankind, passed without notice in an age of science and history. It happened during the lifetime of Seneca and the Elder Pliny, who must have experienced the immediate effects, or received the earliest intelligence of the prodigy. Each of these philosophers, in a laborious work, has recorded all the great phenomena of nature, earthquakes, meteors, comets, and eclipses, which his indefatigable curiosity could collect. Both the one and the other have omitted to mention the greatest phenomenon to which the mortal eye has been witnessed since the creation of the globe. A distinct chapter of Pliny is designed for eclipses of an extraordinary nature and unusual duration, but he contents himself with describing the singular defect of light which followed the murder of a Caesar, when, during the greatest part of a year, the orb of the sun appeared pale and without splendor. The season of obscurity, which cannot surely be compared with the preternatural darkness of the Passion, had been already celebrated by most of the poets and historians of that memorable age. End of chapter 15, part 9. End of the Decline and Fall of the Roman Empire, volume 1, by Edward Gibbon. Recording by Monsbru, Helsingfors, Finland.